What happens when your worst fear becomes your reality? Hi, I'm Brent Cassidy. Welcome to the Nightmare Success In and Out podcast, where we explore how to overcome your fears and nightmares and set yourself free. We're going to be exploring this topic with guys that was in Leavenworth with and others who survived their own nightmare. These stories can be inspiring, sometimes sad. There's some humor, but hopefully you can come away with a nugget of something that'll help you knock down some of the prisons you built up in your own mind. Welcome back, Nightmare Success in and out listeners. I am uh, I'm really excited to jump into this interview today. I have a great guest, Mike Morosky. Um, he's a man of real estate, and uh, when I say that, the, if I give a little bit of a background here, he's got 30 plus years in the real estate investment business. That's over $285 million in real estate transactions. Uh, he's an entrepreneur. He's an author. He's a real estate trainer. He's a public speaker. He's a personal coach. Uh, he's chief investment of, uh, officer of two multifamily hedge funds. He's the author of the book Exit Plan. He's the founder CEO of My Core Intentions, and uh, he's the uh, host of Insider Secrets podcast. And he's a personal trainer coach. So it's he's he's got it all. And he was sentenced to ten years in prison. And it's a great comeback story because, you know, we on this show, it's all about what happens when your worst fear becomes your reality. How do you adapt, survive, overcome, set yourself free? Well, Mike is doing all that, and I can't wait to get into it. But first, I want to get into uh, our sponsor for the show, Auto Plaza Direct. I would say that probably most people don't like to spend like a couple of weekends walking the lots, looking for cars. And then, you know, you finally find that car and, and then you spend four to five hours in a dealership to buy the car. You know, it, it's kind of like going to a trip, you know, to the dentist. Nobody likes that. Well, there's a better way to take all this pain and hassle way of getting a car. It's called Auto Plaza Direct. They are your personal car concierge. Just tell them the car you want, what you can pay, and they'll go find that car for you. They'll negotiate your best price and they'll deliver that car to you anywhere you are. They also offer you warranties and financing, full service. Go to autoplazadirect.com to get started with your personal car concierge. The new hassle-free way, the car buying experience you deserve, autoplazadirect.com. Tell them that Brent from Nightmare Success sent you. Okay, folks, let's jump into this. Mike, welcome to the show. Brent, thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to this. I, I have, have to, to uh, the whole root canal uh, going to the dentist, <laughs> going to the dentist comment. I thought, God, I would have rather had a root canal than go to prison for ten years. <laughs> That's true, a root canal, and I've had a root canal. That that was not a good thing. So it's <laughs> hell of a balance. Uh, and I want to give a shout out to Danny Navarro. Uh, Danny was on our uh, show, I think, a couple of podcasts ago. For those uh, listening at home, it was a great story. But he connected me to Mike, which I always appreciate because. Some of my very best episodes that I have are referrals coming from other Nightmare Success guests. So, um, Mike, you're up in uh, Chicago, right? I am. I am in Chicago. Uh, you know, we're getting into that spring, hopefully, here. And somebody said this morning we're supposed to have a snowstorm tomorrow. So, you know, it's that time of year, right? It doesn't feel like spring when it starts snowing again, though. It's, no, it's, it does not. No, I, I uh, actually, I went up to see my uh, middle daughter, Carly, uh, 
couple of weeks ago and it was weird because I, I, she kept saying it snowed like four or five inches and I, I, I went back past the airport and, and you know, there's no snow. And then by the time we got to where she was, she's up North and there was like five inches of snow. It was like a direct line that went through there and, and, um, there was real snow there. There was where, where it was up in Lake Forest. Oh, okay. Got yeah. it. If you get it, Brent, look me up. Let's have coffee. Yeah, absolutely. For yeah. sure. I, we, we head up there because, uh, we have to see my daughter and Sam, her, her husband and their love and life up there. They're out of the yeah. big city downtown. So yeah. I'll so you. did you grow up Mike, in Chicago? Uh, in the suburbs. Okay. So I just, I live in the city now. Um, you know, when I came home from prison and re, uh, did my life, figured out what I was, or try to figure out what I was going to do. I just said, Hey, I've always wanted to live in the city. Yeah. Um, I'm going to move downtown. So, well, take me back a little bit to, uh, your early life of, uh, little Mike growing up as a kid, family, siblings, uh, what was going on in your world growing up? Yeah. So I'm the oldest of three. Okay. Um, you know, I'm the hero. Yeah. I, uh, and, uh, the pioneer, so to say, uh, family background, um, you know, came from a, you know, pretty dysfunctional household. But I think more importantly is I didn't grow up in a household of entrepreneurs. Yeah. And, and I don't know where I got that blood. I I do remember sitting uh, on the side of a swimming pool one day. We were on family vacation. And uh, I remember I, I had to be eight years old, Brent. And um, I asked my dad, I said, hey, what are all the rooms around this uh, building? And uh, he said, oh, people come here, they stay here, and they pay the owner money uh, to stay here. And I don't know, that instant, I was like, damn, I want to be the owner. Uh, <laughs> I want people paying me money. And I think that's where I got the real estate bug was was back then, because I'd always been curious about buildings and real estate. And so, in your blood. Uh, it was in your blood. Yeah. Well, I, I know that you kind of were entrepreneur thinking uh Early on, I mean, you had a, a paper route and, and you you were kind of figuring things out as a kid. Not every kid has a paper route. Yeah. And today you can't even get one. But I, I think I had two, actually. Yeah. Uh, but the whole lemonade stand thing and yeah. a couple of routes and, and always being an entrepreneur, trying to figure things out. Um, you know, when I was a young kid, my, my dad used to work for uh, the Chicago, a couple of the Chicago newspapers. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the Chicago Tribune actually. And uh, he would take me to work with him in the summer and he'd put me in a factory and uh, I would sell papers in the morning to the guys uh, and men and women coming in, going to work in the factory. Great idea. And <laughs> so, uh, but he taught me, he taught me some basic skills like how to count change yeah. without a calculator or, or a cash register. Right and how to make change for odd numbers and things like that. And, uh, and taught me directions and how to get around. And, uh, so it was always interesting, but were you, you close, know, were you close Mike with your dad? I mean, was it, I was, yeah, yeah, I was, um, yeah, he actually, uh, he actually, you know, God, can I say this on, on air, but I, I don't, I've never said this on a podcast. He actually got murdered oh my in gosh. Uh, 1983. Wow. So uh, we, we were close. Um, and, uh, it was, you know, my parents had split up by then I was out of high school and, um, it had to be know. so traumatic. I mean, for someone to die, um, 
obviously that's traumatic. But when somebody dies this violent, I just can't even know how you wrap your mind around that. Yeah, and you know, Brent, it was violent. Um, it was a syndicate hit. Um, my dad happened to be with somebody who um, these guys were after, mm-hmm. and um, uh, you, you know, the police kind of said that because the one guy got shot ten times, my dad got shot once, and mm-hmm. um, but uh, you know, that was a long time ago. I was twenty three, yeah, twenty four. I'm yeah. a little bit older than that now. Well, you know, we've both got gray hair, so, you know, you never know how old somebody is. <laughs> yeah. um, and so uh, it's funny because when I was in prison, there was – so in 2005, uh, they they rounded up all these guys from the syndicate. They had this big thing here in, the, in Chicago called uh, Family Secret Trial. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was – they all got convicted of murder. There were 23 different murders. My dad uh, was one of those. And they, um, uh, you know, say what they put the rest of the syndicate in in jail. But, you know, that never happened. But um, I had to be, I I just can't imagine, Mike. Did, um, you know, going through that, uh, because I guess backing up a little bit here, when, when you were growing up and you're talking about your dad and, and you know, how he kind of helped you out, did, what, did, did you, like as a kid, were you, was it kind of a normal childhood? Did you play sports, go to school, play in the neighborhood? Yeah. Was that kind of your, your world? Yeah, I played baseball. Um, my mom always told me you should be a professional baseball player. They didn't make as much money back then as no, they, they do now. But, uh, <laughs> they did make money. Um, but I, you know, baseball was my passion. I played baseball. I played football. I wrestled in high school. Okay. Uh, and so I was pretty athletic, uh, you know, and, um, did, did that lead you, uh, through your high school years being involved in that? Did, uh, did you go to college and, and like, how did that all progress for you? So I was going to go to Arizona state, um, actually talks about a scholarship and I got hurt senior year, oh. um, uh, fourth day of summer practice for football. I stepped in a rabbit hole and, uh, blew my knee out mm. and it was, you know, it was over for me. So how'd you um, deal with that? Uh, drugs and alcohol. Yeah. Yeah. Real so went up, yeah. Yeah. Went down in that rabbit hole and, um, uh, drugs and alcohol. So, I mean, how long did you, in that world of really probably was a depression, that was your your goal, what you were shooting for, how long did you stay in that world of, of being down? Yeah, so uh, great question. Um, so I thought that, you know, I thought life was going to be to um, be a cocaine dealer, you know, mm-hmm. and run dope and um, got involved in some, God, I've never talked about this stuff on a podcast before. Uh, so this is going to be, this will be a good one. Um, yeah. And that didn't work out either because, you know, my addiction took over, you know, Rodney Dangerfield had an old line. He said, man, I'd quit snorting Coke if I didn't like the smell so much. So, um, you know, the day came where, where I needed, I, so I, 
I was living in an old farmhouse mm -hmm. um, and uh, I lived in the basement and I thought I was so cool, Brett. I was an entrepreneur. I had two mattresses on the floor, um, you know, uh, had my desk. I had two milk crates with a board on it. That's my desk. And, and I was in the construction business just starting out. Yeah. And, um, and I'm young, right? Yeah. So, um, I, I'm upstairs was another couple living and then above the garage, there was another apartment and it was a Friday night. Um, and, and I'm, you know, I'm deep in my disease at that time, mm -hmm. but it's a Friday night and, um, I'm hanging out with this girl and, uh, we, and the couple upstairs and the couple who live above the garage and we are partying, we're partying hard. And so it starts Friday night and by Sunday, uh, late night, midnight, one o'clock, uh, Johnny who lived in the apartment above the garage says, Hey, let's play Russian roulette and, um, pulls a, pulls a gun out, puts it on the table and is, um, says, um, who's going first. And, and I look at this girl and we say, Hey, we're leaving. Mm -hmm. We leave. Uh, then the other guy, Chris, Tim and Chris, they leave. And, um, I don't get to the bottom of the stairs and I hear bang. Oh, man. And, uh, the girl, uh, his girlfriend, Kathy scream and run back upstairs. And, and he had, um, blown half his head off. Um, that was enough to get me into treatment the next day. That was a wake up call. Um, yeah. So I went to treatment, uh, about, uh, about four months later, my dad got murdered and, um, you know, just kind of, uh, from there, you know, tried to figure out how to live life. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, did that, did that make you want to fall back into the drugs and alcohol or had you, steadied yourself enough that even though this traumatic event happened that you were going to, you were going to step through it. Yeah. So it's funny, right? Cause I was in this six week treatment program or I was in a four week treatment program and they threw me out after six weeks, told me to come back when I wanted to get serious. Mm. And I've all, I'm always, I've always had this attitude of I'll show you, mm -hmm. you know, and, and I walked out of there saying, I'll show you. So I started going to AA and I got really serious and I got sober and, you know, I was sober for 26 years. Wow. So, um, and, and I always say, you know, I always say that, um, I, I was sober most of the time, so, but I had all those times too, where I wasn't, mm -hmm. you know, dry. I, I never went back and used drugs or drank again mm -hmm. over that period of time till my business started to fail. Yeah. You know, and at the time when I got sober, I was in the construction business. So I was building a um, construction company. Yeah, I want to know about all that because it's interesting how your life, uh, from what I can tell, the, the background story is, is you, you, that's how you really entered the world of real estate was, is you were, you got into construction. Yeah. So, you know, my dad always said, he said, look, if you ever go into business for yourself, food, shelter, clothing. Yeah. And I've always been in shelter, right? Mm -hmm. Started with construction. So funny story, I had a swimming pool business and I'm in the Midwest and it's not a good business in the wintertime. <laughs> not in Chicago. So I needed to figure something else out to do. 
So I started doing kitchen and bath remodeling yeah. and that led to room additions. And before I knew it, that's all I was doing yeah. was construction. But like any entrepreneur, Brent, I was, you know, doing the marketing, the sales, the contract writing, the ordering, the hiring, the firing, Wearing all uh, the hats. And the field banging nails. Yeah. And woke up one morning and, uh, I was married at the time, my first wife, and woke up in the morning, looked at my wife, and I said, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. Burnt out. Mm. Just burnt to a crisp. And How many years had that been that you got burnt um, out? Uh, 15. All right. That's a good amount of yeah. time. Yeah. Yeah, 15 years. So I, um, uh, I had somebody knocking on my door. They wanted to buy the company. And I sold the company. Wow! So I had a little bit of little bit of uh, yeah. startup capital, runway capital, and I went and bought a uh, two flat okay. uh, a house hack. And today it's sexy, but back <laughs> then nobody was doing it. Right. So we're living in a, in one of these units, uh, remodeling the other one, and you know I, I sold the company with the intention of taking a year off. But as an entrepreneur, we never take time off, right? Sure. So. So I get into this other project, but I had, I had heard Jim Rohn say years ago that success leaves clues mm-hmm. and always understood that. Right. So if you model somebody who's successful, uh, you can shorten your learning curve. You can do, do things and grow at a, at a, at a steadier pace. And even if you follow people who've made mistakes, you're going to learn a lot. Oh yeah. And I, I'm a big believer that, you know, saying that Mike is such a big tip because if you find somebody that's getting it right and they're doing something that you can implement in your business, it's like getting the answers to the test before the test. And it also yep. gives you a lot more confidence to implement that because you already know somebody else is making it work. So many people miss that. And and I think, you know, it's just, I think maybe it's just not having your eyes open and thinking you've got to figure it out and reinvent everything yourself because there's so many clues out there. And I like what you said. You can also learn from the mistakes that happen because then you find out, okay, that's the, I, when I get to that, I'm not going to do that. And that's those building, building business. I, you know, I, I built a division in our company that was totally modeled, modeled off a pharmaceutical company and we were in the funeral business and it worked perfectly. But uh, it's a, for entrepreneurs, you, you don't just get a three-ring binder to be, okay, here's the entrepreneur uh, three-ring binder. You have to look, create, implement, take action, fall back, mistakes happen, get a little wiser, and you move forward. Yeah, 100%. 100%. So, um, yeah. So you've got the two you, – you're, now you're in business. You've, you've got the, the two flat, you're remodeling, and that's right. on go. So um, – and this is my first experience in real estate at this time. So uh, I meet a real estate agent, really successful. This is back when houses were were fifty thousand dollars average, and he was selling a hundred a year. Mm-hmm. Um, so I went to him and I said, "Hey, I, I think I'd like to go in this business." He said, "Oh, I think you'd be great at it." So he encouraged me, and then I went to him and I said, "Hey, could I shadow you? Uh, you know, and work, you know, see how your team operates." He goes, "No." He goes, but I'm going to do better than that. I'm going to make you a cassette tape. And this is this a long time ago now, right? <laughs> so kids are saying, kid, the 20 year olds are saying, what are what are those? Yeah, right. Much less find something to make one. Out. Yeah, right. And and I I 
I'm not, I follow, I listened to that tape over and over and over again. I went into business in, uh, the early nineties and I, I sold, um, 78 houses my first nine months in the business. Wow. I was Remax rookie of the year, uh, went on to build a team selling 125 homes a year, uh, did that consecutively for about 12 years. And then 2005 came around and I saw the market starting to shift. And I had people working for me. And here again, I'm the hero. Mm-hmm. I don't want to lay anybody off. I don't want to give anybody bad news. Yeah. I, um, I, I think, you know, I always wanted to be in the apartment business. It was one of those dreams I had. I watched a couple of apartment syndicators here in the Chicago market that started from nothing. And, and one in particular today is the largest REIT in the world. Uh, and they're in 80 countries, every asset class. And I said, man, anything's possible. Yeah. So I, I, I understood you could raise private equity, marry it with a great real estate deal, stay in the middle. Mm-hmm. And as long as everything went well, everybody do well. Mm-hmm. I syndicated my first deal in 2005. Over the next 30 months, I raised $18 million. I bought 4,000 apartments in five U.S. markets. I built a property management company managing 7,500 units. And I did that in 30 months. That's uh, incredible. 2008 rolled around and it was like hitting a brick wall in a freight train. Yeah. Uh, I grew way too fast. So I always tell people I made five mistakes. The first is I grew way too fast, very unstable as a company. Uh, don't ever do what I did. You know, uh, yes, the models work, the systems work, but take your time, be patient. Mm-hmm. It's a marathon, not a sprint. Um, but it's intoxicating, though. You know, Mike, I think that's one thing that is kind of lays behind all that. When you're growing something, um, the, 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 the fun and the feel of growth and uh, seeing people do well that are, are with you and your company, it, it just, it's got a certain rhythm and feel to it. And I think that's where you can get blindsided. And, you know, the little things don't seem that big. And so they can get bigger as, as you're moving. And I think that's what happens a lot of times. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I agree. Um, I think that you do get it. I like that word intoxicated, right? Kind of, you know, you fall in love with it. Yeah. So, so yeah, go ahead. Oh no, I was just going to say, so I grew this company 2008 rolled around, started to unravel. Um, had no idea where, where the market was headed. I had probably 12 companies that I should have let go to foreclosure, uh, and, and a handful of investors get hurt, Mm -hmm. but here again, I'm the hero and I have to, uh, try and save everybody. So, um, I decide I'm going to start moving money from profitable companies to non-profitable companies Mm -hmm. and try and keep everything afloat. So none of my investors get hurt. My attorney, my accountant both said it's okay to do that. Just leave a paper trail. I'm of the belief at this point that this is a short recession. Yeah. It's going to be 10 to 12 months or 17, 18 months, like a typical recession. Yeah. And we're going to 10 to 12% correction in the market. And then everything's going to bounce back. Right. Well, was I wrong? Seven or <laughs> it was the years, great recession, right? 40% correction in the market. Um, you can't withstand that storm. Uh, so, you know, moving money was one thing, but non-disclosure was another. See, when you raise private capital, 
you're held at a much higher standard and you need to tell people where their money is and what the movement is. Um, we didn't lie on any documents about anything, but I didn't tell my investors that I took their money or their profits from here and put it here mm -hmm. so that they wouldn't get hurt. Yeah. Um, so I wound up being charged on wire fraud and mail fraud charges uh, for non-disclosure issues. And you know, Brett, you know, wire fraud and mail fraud charges are so vast, right? I mean, oh, yeah. somebody actually could go to prison for, for wiring their electric bill payment oh, yeah. in. Well, um, and, and it, it's, it's very scary when you look at mail fraud, wire fraud, because that's what we had. And, you know, with 30-year business, you know, they stack those charges. Uh, you know, many times you want to charge somebody that they put something in the mails. Many times you want to charge somebody for the wire fraud. Did you, how did you, how did it come on you, Mike? The, the, I mean, obviously that's where you ended up, but how, how did it, did you feel it coming at you? Did you know you were being investigated? Did you, um, were there indications that, did you get a knock on the door? Yeah. So great question. Right. Uh, I don't know that I, I, I knew, I didn't never thought I was breaking the law. Mm -hmm. You know, actually our in-house legal counsel said this, he said, look, he goes, let's put, let's shut everything down, file bankruptcy if we need to, mm -hmm. and we can open back up in six months. Everybody does it. That was the exact conversation. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, what we wound up doing was in November of 2010, we had put all of our assets with a receiver. We did kind of a voluntary bankruptcy, but we never went bankrupt. Mm -hmm. We just turned all our assets over. So all that real estate, we gave, you know, uh, an, a receiver came in to operate it to kind of be that bandwidth between us and the investor, right? right. The noise was so loud. Um, I got a phone call one morning from one of our vice presidents and, and Brent, I had a hundred people working for us. You know, I was building a company. My goal was to build this monstrosity yeah, national company. Right. And, um, I get a call from one of our vice presidents one morning who says, Hey, um, the, the FBI was just at my house asking questions. And I'm, I was like, damn, yeah. you're kidding. Right. So I, I didn't That's really a, see sit a cold chill up your spine when that, when that happens. Yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, so I had um, that particular individual was working in an offsite place, working with another guy who was trying to do um, what we were trying to do at the time was get some bonds monetized. Uh, it was a couple hundred million dollars in bonds. We thought if we could get, you know, a portion of that monetized, that we'd be able to have some, some bonds. capital. Sure. And so we had paid this guy uh, some upfront fees, like a consulting fee, coaching fee to, you know, to try and do this. Well, he wound up getting indicted, not the guy who worked for me, but, but this other group Third wound up guy. getting indicted on something he did five years before that in Arizona. Mm. Um, that wasn't even on anybody's radar. Um, and then, so that happened. Then, because we were named as a victim in that guy's case, there were a couple of phone calls uh, to the FBI from investors, two mm -hmm. out of 250 inv investors saying, hey, you know, we, uh, we're trying to get our capital out. Well, Brett, you know, real estate's in liquid. Yeah. You, you, 
and and especially when the market shifts. I mean, there there's no capital to get out. Mm-hmm. Um, so we uh, we we think that it was a combination of those couple of things. Mm-hmm. There was an attorney who tried to do a class action lawsuit. He called. I don't know where he got a list of our investors, but he called all of our investors and everybody except for two or three investors told him to go scratch. Mm-hmm. Uh, that we weren't doing anything wrong. And and even at sentencing, I had 12 investors that were in court saying, don't put him in prison. He's worth more to us on the street than he is hmm. put away. Yeah. You know, and well, uh, the government just didn't see it that way. How long did that? How long did that process last? So it's like the time that you find out that the FBI is is sniffing around to your standing in front of the judge. Yeah. So, um, so 2010 in November, we put all of our assets with a receiver. Mm-hmm. But prior to that. So August of 2010, I was on vacation with um, my family. Mm-hmm. We were in uh, Southern California, uh, annual vacation, come home from vacation. How and, many kids uh, you got, by the way? Forgot to ask you uh, that. Yeah, five. Five kids. Yeah. Wow. Three don't talk to me yeah. uh, today as a result of all this. That's um, sad. Which is an absolute shame. Yeah. I mean. I would give anything to have those relationships back. And, and that's the, that's the only regret from this whole thing I have yeah. is my relationship with my children today. So. Well, there's so much collateral damage that happens with that. And, and, you know, I've, the whole family goes through something like this when, when someone is targeted and, and an investigation happens and it's just a, it's a horrible thing. I wouldn't wish it on anybody, even if somebody was really mean to me. I, I really, the experience of having to go through a federal investigation is, is night is, is the nightmare of nightmares because you, you go to bed with it, you wake up with it and you know, the hole just keeps getting bigger and deeper and, um, and everybody that's around you feels that. And it's, it's a lot. I want to so get let me, Yeah, go ahead. Here, let, let me let me finish this because I think this is really important at this at this point. Yeah. So, um, in August of 2010, I'm on vacation. I come back. My ex partner hands me two business cards. He says, "You need to find a criminal attorney." I go, "Criminal? I had no idea that that yeah. we were at this point." So I I find a criminal attorney, and he says, "Oh, I don't think you guys have done anything wrong. You'll be okay." November of 2010, we put all our assets with a receiver. Um, in May of 2011, I get indicted. Mm. Um, shortly after that, I'm in my attorney's office reading the, the 302s, the FBI report. Yeah. And, and I, I'm reading these reports and I go, my ex-partner testified at the grand jury in August in 2010 when I was on vacation to throw me under the bus. Oh. So my ex-partner, our in-house legal counsel and our director of finance uh, testified at the grand jury in August, crafted this story, and I'm reading this stuff and I'm going, oh my God, none of this shit ever happened. <laughs> They're cheating me. And there it was. And, and, and I got, listen, so, you know, um, I got so mad that day. And I was so angry and I was in tears in my attorney's office. It was a Friday afternoon mm-hmm. and, and my attorney, um, he, 
he said, look, he goes, you're not leaving. Cause I said, I said, you know, Hey, if I, if I'm, if I'm going to prison, I'm going to prison for murder. Mm-hmm. I said, I'm going to go home and I'm going right to this guy's house. Mm-hmm. My attorney. So that was at three o'clock in the afternoon on a Friday. My attorney was expected at home by his wife to go out for a dinner function at six. Um, we never left his office till eight thirty um, because he wanted to make sure that I wasn't going to go. Uh, were that so mad. Yeah. I was, I was really upset. That would have been bad. And yeah, well, I might've been home sooner though. That's true. <laughs> that's true. Um, <laughs> that, that, that's an inside joke, but that might be true. Yeah. Um, so I want to get into you stepping into the unknown world of, of prison, but before we do that, there's a guy that has a company that is crisis management. He's a sponsor of the company. It's, um, AaronDuncan.net, full-service global communications company. And they are basically the company that tries to make and, and does a really good job of making bad news go away. They're known as the trauma surgeons of brand crises, corporate scandals, high-profile litigation, legal investigations, prosecutions. And, you know, it's they, they do the work that, a lot of attorneys sometimes don't do is they'll go in deep and, and, and go into that discovery and find things to help um, a crisis out. And uh, they know what they're looking for. Their, their services include crisis management, crisis communication, media relations, reputation management, positive public relations, prison consulting and coaching for a confidential con- consultation regarding a crisis or reputation issue. Email Aaron D- W. Duncan at gmail.com, text or phone 636-236-5071 for anybody who's got a crisis out there. I could have used these guys back in the day, so don't be afraid to give these guys a call if you feel like you've got some dark places and you need help. So, yeah, we could have used that guy, right, Mike? Yeah. Have him come in and save the day and and, and get you out of the crisis or at least wade you through the mess. Um, So let's, let's talk about this. So you... Your attorney, now you know that you're cooked. Um, they've taken your people in, and they've, they've got this narrative now that um, is only going to grow bigger because that's the way it you – know, when you see the United States of America versus your name, that might be one of the most intimidating pieces of paper you can look at. Yeah, 100%. So you go through uh, – how long does this whole investigation from indictment to um, getting sentenced last? Um, so I guess I got indicted in May of two of 2011 and I reported, uh, self-surrendered July 13th of 2013. Okay. So you went through a couple of years of, of living yeah. under the umbrella of indictment. And it was terrible. Yeah. It was awful. I, I mean, every time the phone rang, uh, a squad car go past you with their lights on. I mean, it was just, it was all, it was awful. Yeah. Um, uh, and it, I, like you said, I wouldn't wish it on anybody. Mm-mm. Here's what I can tell you, though. I, I got sentenced to 10 years. My ex-partner was home in 30 months. Wow. Well, that's, <laughs> that's how that works. I mean, that's, that's how those things work. And I want to know how you felt, though, the day that you were in there. Did you know that you were the possibility of getting 10 years? Had that been worked out in the back rooms? And what? what no. When he lays down 10 years, what, what does Mike think? 
So um, it's a big number. We, we had a sentencing hearing, um, blind plea. Uh, I pled guilty. Uh, I sentencing hearing lasted seven and a half hours. Five and a half hours, I had a forensic accountant on the stand that the government paid for and proved that my loss was $2 million. Uh, and um, the government said, that's nice, but we're going we're gonna to charge you with $18 million in restitution. Yeah. Um, so, but during a sentencing hearing, my attorney leaned over and he wrote the number 48 on a piece of paper. So you're going to get 48 months. Mm -hmm. So I'm standing and the judge is reading all the, you know, stuff. Yeah. The Meshuggah that he reads prior to, um, to telling you what what the number is. Right. And and when he said 120 months, this is, this happened in the courtroom. (gasps) Everybody sucked all the air out of the courtroom. It was all of a sudden like surreal, mm-hmm. and and I'm in my mind going 120 months, 12 into 120 months. I thought that's ten fucking years. That's ten. Can I say that? Sorry, right, you can say that. We're on explicit. <laughs> um, so um, I, I'm like ten years, and and then I turn around and my wife, two of my daughters, um, are in tears mm. in the courtroom. And, um, uh, you know, I went to, uh, left court that day, um, after my sentencing, they gave me, and then they tried to arrest me right away. And my attorney, you know, the only good thing my attorney did was fight for me to have 90 days to get my life together. Mm -hmm. And, um, uh, you know, so so I didn't report that was in April of 2013. I wound up reporting in July. So I had like 74 days mm-hmm. I was on an ankle monitor. Um, but I, I, I left court that day and my, my wife and, and two of my daughters and myself in the car, we went to one of my daughter's houses, uh, who was living with, with her mom. And, um, you know, when I told her, uh, that I got 10 years, she ran into her room and I've never talked to her again. Wow. Um, so, you know, um, I have a good relationship with my oldest daughter, mm-hmm. um, and her, and my grandkids, but you know, the aftermath mm-hmm. is devastating. It, yeah. It, it's devastating. And that never gets taken into consideration by, by the government, by anybody, you know, they get another notch on their belt. Actually, my prosecutor's a, a judge today, and uh, and good for him. You know, he worked hard to get there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but um, listen, here's what here's what I know. Five years before I was indicted, the SEC would have stopped in, stepped in, slapped my hand, charged me two hundred fifty thousand dollar fine, said go back and straighten your business out. Yeah. And don't let it happen again. And we'd have an opportunity to straighten everything out. Um, there was no, you know, but after Bernie Madoff, uh, anybody, really all the white collar stuff got, yep. just got crazy. Yeah. Well, so, walk, walk me into, cause you're going, 
you're going into prison, which is something you never planned on. It's the unknown world. Uh, where did they send you? Uh, I went to I went to Duluth, okay. which is, um, you know, actually Barbara Walters did a S- expose on Duluth. Yeah, years ago, and it was club fed. Yeah. They had a bowling alley and a swimming pool and a three-hole golf course, and, and they didn't have any of that when I went there. <laughs> no, they, they got rid of all of that once that happened. I think it yeah. was in the late, late, late 80s when she did that, that expose, yeah. and that, that stripped everything of everything. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what, but, what's, what are you thinking? You're, you're, you're voluntarily surrendered. You're standing at the gate. You know you've got a 10-year sentence. What's, what is going through your mind, Mike, that with this – walking into this world that you never planned on, but know that you're going to be here for a while. I had no idea. So the day I got indicted, I left court that day. My wife and I climbed in the car and I said, Hey, look, I said, we have two choices. I said, I can scurry around, put an envelope together with a couple hundred thousand in it. And you're going to burn through that in a couple of years and go get it, have to get a job mm-hmm. or I can build a business for you. So I took the next two years and delayed and delayed and delayed while I built a property management company that she still owns and operates here in Chicago today. It kept her and the kids in the house. So it's been her livelihood, yeah. right? Um, before I went away. Um, so I really didn't think much, mm-hmm. uh, Brett, about what it was gonna be like, what was gonna happen. But um, I, I remember getting, so I get on the airplane. Uh, it's a Monday morning, I get on the airplane to fly to- uh, Duluth. Uh, and we're about 30 minutes into the flight, and the pilot comes on and says, uh, flight attendants, prepare the plane for an emergency landing. What? And I I think to myself, what a way to end this story, right? He goes <laughs> oh down in a, in a ball of flame. And uh, we wound up getting back to O'Hare safely, but it was, uh, they couldn't pressurize the cabin. So wow. they had to go back. So I have to call the prison. And, you know, the guy gets on the phone and he's like, yeah, hold on. And he must have called the airlines to find out that I was telling the truth. Sure. He was, Just try to be here before midnight. Keep us posted. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I call my wife, come back, pick me up. She picks me up, brings me back to um, uh, back home. I spend the day with her and the kids, takes me back to the airport that night. And, um, and I get on the plane. I get to Duluth, get in the cab. Um, and, uh, you know, the guy drives me from the airport to the prison and I get in and, you know, they're just dicky to you when you get there. Oh, yeah. oh you're by yourself. <laughs> Didn't have, you know, mm. you know, all their snide. Prisonizer. Comments. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But they put me in the, uh, they put me in this observation room, steel cell with a steel toilet and, a, a concrete bed with a with a mattress pad that was maybe a half inch thick. I mean, yoga pads got more cushion than this thing had. Mm-hmm. And I sat there from one o'clock in the morning till seven. Just thinking. I, I, I was like, what the fuck did I do to my life? Yeah. What did I do? Mm-hmm. And, um, God, you're making me think about stuff that I just haven't really thought about. Um, and so, you know, uh, I, I, Brett, I cried. Yeah. Prison's not a place you want to cry. No. But I cried every day for 18 months. 
18 months. I was in prison three weeks. My wife uh, decided she was going to divorce me. Mm. Uh, it wrecked me. Um, I, you know, two kids wouldn't talk to me. And um, I was wondering what the hell happened in my life. I walked around every day just wondering what, what was next. Go? Right. And so I walk in the gym. It's about, I'm about six weeks in. And remember, I, I've gone from running marathons and being in great shape to being 35 pounds overweight. I hate myself, mm. you know. You're depressed. And, yeah. And, and I walk into prison and this guy walks over to me and he goes, hey, get over it. He goes, don't let these people beat you. Mm. All he wanted was take everything from you you've ever known or ever wanted. Mm -hmm. He goes, you can get it all back. He goes, you're a smart guy. You built a $100 million company. You built companies before that. He goes, they can't take what you have inside. Right. I don't know what it was, but I think we all have these defining moments in our life. Yeah. And the switch flipped. And I went, okay. He said, come to my class, work out, start losing weight. You'll start feeling better. Mm -hmm. And I did. I, I don't know what it was, but I took him up on it. Um, and I was just window shopping that day. I wasn't looking at <laughs> the gym or doing anything. And so I started going to this guy's class yeah. and I started losing weight. I started feeling better. I wound up going to college. Yeah. I got a bachelor's degree in theology. Yeah. Um, I started, uh, I wrote two books. I started teaching in education. So I taught real estate investing, property management, and ethics. How ironic a, a federal yeah. inmate teaching Love ethics it. in prison, right? Yeah. Um, I was on an outreach program. I went into the community. I told my story 40 times to local business owners small co or, and college students. Love it. I wound up being a professor from the University of Minnesota. He and I co-authored a paper together that we had published in the Business Journal of Ethics um, that today gets taught at the collegiate level for forensic accounting and sales and marketing classes. And uh, uh, today I'm home. I'm in the coaching and training business. Uh, I teach people not to make the mistakes I made yeah. and how to uh, exit their real estate deals. That's the name of my book, Exit yeah. Plan. Exit Plan. And uh, I got approved by the SEC to go back and be an issuer of securities and a sponsor of uh, multifamily and raise capital again. So um, working on, on, you know, raising capital, putting deals together and uh, putting a life back together. Well, let's let's unpack a little bit of that, of what you just said, because I think it's so interesting that you were at your rock bottom moment. I guess you maybe had a rock bottom moment when, when you just, the, the, your dad got murdered. But I, I think this moment would have been much different because you're older and you've got more on the table of, of what is yours. Um, but I think it's interesting how a rock bottom moment could be that you totally gave up, got in a fetal position and the world's unfair and it'll never be right. And look at me where I'm at now. And you did exactly the opposite of that. Mike, you went, your mindset changed to a new beginning. Uh, you begin to get confidence again that no, I am, they didn't take my brain. I still am me. And what I think is interesting about all that is in prison, you didn't lose yourself. You actually started doing things that you had always done. And I'm pretty confident that that probably helped you eat up your time because you were using your brain the way that you used your brain on the outside. Yeah. And that can be used in so many different things in life is you don't lose yourself in a bad situation. You have to grab and grip yourself. Even if it's your rock bottom moment, you have a choice. 
you know, you take the victim route or you take the survivor route. You, you made a hard turn towards survivor. Um, when you started getting close to the door, knowing that you're getting out, um, what were you thinking? Were you thinking I'm going to step in and create what I've been thinking and this is going to be Mike Morawski 2.0? Yeah, I, um, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of Job in the Bible. And, uh, I, I, I was coming out thinking, man, I have this whiteboard. I can redesign everything. And I had this business plan that I had built and I was going to, you know, just come back and do the coaching and training business, um, speak publicly. And I do all that, Mm -hmm. but I never thought that I was going to raise capital again, or that I would go back into the real estate space, uh, in the capacity that I'm in today. Yeah. And there's a couple of people in my court that um, have encouraged me and loved me through all of this. Mm-hmm. One of my friends says that I'm going to be the Michael Milken of multifamily. He's my, he, he, to me, that guy is the epic. Uh, you know, I, I followed that all the way back in the eighties and how he did what he did and yeah. just never gave up his brilliance and, and people had to come to him and they didn't want to, but they needed him because he was just that smart. I love that. Never give up your brilliance. Um, and he didn't. He and he went through cancer, and he went through everything, and 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 kept being who he was. Yeah. Was it hard, Mike, for you, um, being an ex felon? You know, you're tattooed with that. You, you you never give it up. Doesn't matter how much time they give you. You're going to be uh, an ex felon when you go out in the world. How did you step through that? Because you had to start yeah, building cool. again. That's a great question. So for the first six months, I wouldn't tell anybody. Yeah. Um, I, I, but here's the thing that happened. Just like before I went in, after I got indicted, I was always looking over my shoulder yeah. and wondering when it was going to come up or somebody was going to say something. Um, so I have a call with a guy from New York one morning and he called me and he said, look, I was just on a red eye from California to New York last night. I read your book. It's brilliant. Um, He goes, but tell me who Frank Constant is. Oh, God. You might want to edit that out. Sorry. Um, He uh, and I said, oh, he's my ex-partner. He goes, good answer. Because if you would have told me any different, I would have known you were a liar. (laughs) Um, And um, it some, you know, again, one of those defining moments. So I talked to some of my close, confident people around me. And uh, I started telling my story every chance I could. I've been liberating, though, right? It is. Yeah, it is because it provides hope and inspiration. Yeah. And I want people to know: don't be defined by your past. Exactly. Who cares, who cares if there was alcoholism, drug abuse, addiction? Right. Uh, if there was sexual violence, if there was uh, verbal violence, physical? Who cares? Don't let that crap hold you back. Right. Move forward. Get out of, get, get on. Um, well, so. I, I, I think quite honestly, first of all, people like a good comeback and it also makes you more authentic, Mike, that uh, you did build a big empire of your own. You lost it. And it's, it becomes more believable that yes, you've gone through all this, you know, where, where the landmines are and you're not going to do that again. You're going to build something 
how you want to build it. And people, once they hear and feel that, uh, I think it draws people. And I think that's why you're doing the job that you're doing now is because the, it, it's, if you keep that on the outside and they have to find it out some way, it's like, well, why is he not talking about that? But the fact yeah. that you're leading with that, uh, I just think it makes you more effective of all the things that you're doing. You know, you're coaching people, you're walking them through real estate, you're putting the syndicates together. You're get, I, How hard was it for you to get relicensed back in to be able to, to I'm raise money? Licensed. I'm not licensed. So I'm, I, I'm coaching a couple of people in my coaching business and I, I had been underwriting deals okay. on, you know, in kind of what's my spare time, yeah. you know, as an entrepreneur spare right, time, right. I find this deal. And uh, so I went to one of my coaching clients and I said, Hey, I think you might be ready. I said, you know, do you think this is something you want to do? So we started to walk down the road and I said, look, you and I are not going to do this on our own. Went to another coaching client, brought her in yeah. and the three of us partnered on a deal. Um, securities attorney out of Boulder, my, you know, uh, my hat's off to her. I, I never even thought about this. And, um, she says, Hey, you know, I think I can get you approved by the SEC to go back and, and mm -hmm. do this. And I said, I said, have at it. So I don't hear from her for about three months about the topic. One day she shows up on a call and goes, Hey, look what I got. Letter from the SEC says, you know, just go back. All you have to do is disclose it for six months and then you're done. I said, let's go back to him. Tell him that I'll disclose it forever. Yeah. And they were even happier with that. So I, I don't, I, you don't have to get licensed for what I yeah, do on yeah. the aisle, but um, I got the approval. And I never thought, Brent, I never thought that I would do this again. And here's, here's what happened. I'm on a meetup one day and there's probably 150 people on this meetup. I'm telling my story mm -hmm. and some guy, and I don't even know who it was today, but some guy out of clear blue nowhere goes, Hey, are you raising capital again? Mm -hmm. And I said, no, he goes, well, let me know when you are, because I wouldn't want to invest with anybody other than you because you made the mistake. Well, I, I think that's just, I, I love that story. And I think the thing that, I, the other thing I love is, is that you went ahead and went through with it. And a, and a guy like you that goes ahead and put yourself out there and you get approved, you're a trailblazer for the people who, who don't think it's possible. And yeah. you, you, what you do is you open that crack in the door there and start walking through that. That helps other people walk through that door because those are the things that need to happen. There's 25 million ex-felons out there, and there's an awful lot of them that think that there's a dead end because of what happened to them. But these type of stories, Mike, give people hope that you can do it. And, and that's a huge thing because like you said, that's a mindset thing. You changed your mindset in prison and you've continued on as you've gotten out. Is it easy? Absolutely not. There's mm -hmm. nothing easy about anything that you've done or what, anything you've talked about. I think maybe prob probably you being a smart guy that's wired into thinking a certain way um, might not be easy for somebody else, but having the ability to step into stuff that scares you is, is something that you do. Yeah. It's not easy without prison. Exactly. What I exactly. Yeah. So, you know, it's, um, uh, it's worth it though. So getting back home and doing, how long has it been since you've been out? I got, I came home the week they closed the world down for the pandemic. Yeah. So, uh, March of 2020. Yeah. 
Uh, I was on home confinement for 10 months, and then I had two years of uh, probation. Um, January, I got off probation and left the country. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. So, I mean, do you feel like, do you feel like now, you know, this a couple of years going into 2023, do you feel, cause I, t- I think it takes a while to get your feet under you to feel like, okay, I'm back, I'm me. Um, do you feel pretty good? Yeah, I feel a lot better, Brent. Um, I, you know, listen, I think rest, you know, this restitution will haunt us for the, for the, the next lives. 20 years. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, I, I, here's what I say. Um, and, um, you know, today in my life, I'm sober again, about nine and a half years. Yeah. Um, but I'm really sober today. Yeah. I have a great relationship with Jesus. Yeah. Um, those are cornerstones in my life. What is really important. And I say, listen, if God wants me to pay all that money back, then he's going to bless me beyond belief. And we are going to have a hell of a good time along the way. Yep. Uh, I so, love it. That's a great way to think about it too. Uh, Mike, what do you think? Because you've lived, you've lived quite a journey here. Um, for the listeners out of there, what do you think is your biggest takeaway from all this stuff that you've been through? Uh, relationships are critical and really, really important. Um, yeah, relationships are really important. And that the, uh, the really true people in your life, um, after you go through a time like that, are still true people. Yes. Um, I have a handful of people in my life that um, were there for me every step of the way. Um, and if they weren't, they certainly have been since then. Um, uh, That's a big one though. Relationships. Yeah. If you don't have them, uh, it's a lonely walk. Yeah. And I, it, you know, I've, I've been really liking getting to know you and, you know, what we're building here. So I, I like, you know, it's about, you know, what can I do for somebody else today? Yeah. Do, does my message help them? Does my product help them? Yeah. Do I give them something that's of substance? Yeah. And that fuels you up. Yeah. Hey, for those out there, if you're into reading books, there's one that's right behind uh, Mike that I can see. It's the exit plan. He says to me that he's also, and he should, be writing his life story uh, that I'm going to be pressuring him on and keep him on that because I think people need to read that life story. Uh, If anybody else wants to read a book, I've got one too. Uh, It's Nightmare Success, Loyalty, Betrayal, Life Behind Bars, Adapting, Finally Breaking Free. you know, everybody, the crazy thing about Apple, if you go to Apple, hit that follow button up there. It's got little three, um, the three lines there. Follow it. Scroll down. Leave a review. The, Apple loves reviews, and it helps promote the show. I love it when people uh, get on my website and we talk back and forth on uh, BrentCasty.com. And I'll, always loving the likes and the comments uh, on uh, Instagram and Facebook. Love, love the support. Love you guys listening. As I used to say uh, when I was writing back and forth when I was in prison, stay strong and I'll do the same. Mike, thanks so much for sharing your story today. It's a, it's a really inspirational story. I appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate it. And, you know, Brett, if, if anybody wants a copy of that book, um, uh, they can uh, go to my website at uh, mycoreintentions.com. 
And uh, if you want to connect with me, I love to network and I'm open to that. So you can email me direct at Mike at MikeMorowski.com and or find me on uh, social media anywhere, wherever you hang out. I've been reading about him for a few days. (laughs) I appreciate Uh, it, Mike. Appreciate it. All right. Nightmare success in and out. Thanks, everybody.